I don't know about you guys, sometimes I can get really excited about something and talk a lot about it. Um, uh, maybe you can be the same way. And recently, something like that happened to me. How many of you uh, watched basketball in the 80s? Anyone? A few of you? Okay. In the 80s, what, what was there? Lakers Celtics, right. Lakers Celtics, that's it. If you watch basketball in the 80s, it was Lakers Celtics. The rivalry that they had was a true rivalry. If you think the Warriors-Cavs is a rivalry, you are either young or ignorant or some combination of the two. But the Celtics-Cavs had nothing on the Lakers-Celtics. Like these two teams to this day, even they're interviewing them 30 years later and they talk about how they hate Celtic green or they hate the Laker gold. Some of the fouls they took would get people suspended for a season and they didn't even get kicked out of games. There was like clotheslines and fights and this intensity that had never been seen before in the NBA. And in fact, they credit that 10-year span for the revival of the NBA. The NBA was on its deathbed, kind of on life support. And Celtics Lakers came along and made it a a national conversation. Well, recently, uh, there has been a special on. ESPN does these things called 30 for 30, if you're familiar with them. They're sports documentaries. And so they've been going through and interviewing these old players, Larry Bird, Magic Johnson, uh, James Worthy, Kevin McHale, some of these greats if you watch basketball. And I cannot get enough of it. Like, and so I started talking to my wife and saying, no, you got to watch this part. And my wife's probably like, I really don't care, like at all. I'm completely uninterested, but I may, I'd be like, no, you'll really like this part. And I'd click it back. And so last night, I'm up till one o'clock watching this and I can't shut it off. It's a three-part series. I'm like, I, I just want to keep watching it because it sucks me in. It takes me back to like childhood and when I first started watching basketball and the excitement and the enthusiasm. And so I could talk about that with people who didn't even care. And as we get to this point in Galatians, you start to see this redundancy that Paul has of he keeps going on and on and on. And at some point, we're kind of like, we got it, right? And I think that's what my wife wanted to be like with me. I got it okay? The Celtics and Lakers were a big deal. I got it. You don't have to keep telling me. And as we were kind of preparing our message series for Galatians, we started getting to that point, even talking among staff as we're reading through Galatians and going like, boy, this is a little redundant. He's going on and on and on, right? He repeats the same message several times over. And so uh, the good news for you is if you feel that way, when we get into Galatians 5, it kind of changes. The bad news is if you feel like we've been redundant or it's been redundant going through it, we're not in Galatians 5 today. So we're going to be redundant one more time. So um, yeah, all that to to tell you, Paul says the same thing over and over and over. Um, But once again, we're going to look at this idea that fulfilling the law is a futile effort. In fact, it just leads us into slavery and bondage. And today we're actually going to do that through an allegory of Sarah, Abraham, and Hagar. And for those of you that have been out of school a while, um, I'll tell you what an allegory is. Because if you're like me, you're like, I kind of think I know, but I went ahead and looked up the definition to make sure I knew because I didn't want to use that word and not know what I was talking about. So an allegory is a story or poem that can be interpreted to reveal a hidden meaning. Typically, it's a moral or political one. And to give you an example, maybe you're not all familiar with this, but maybe some of you are. There's a book called Pilgrim's Progress. That would have been an allegory about one spiritual journey, and it takes you through the struggles and the ups and downs. It's not a true story, but it's an allegory picturing that and revealing that meaning. Um, So the allegory we're going to read today is Paul demonstrating the superiority of the freedom we have in faith in Christ 
versus the slavery that's represented by the message of the Judaizers. And again, we're going to see the Judaizers referenced again today. Um, Hopefully we're all familiar with them. If not, we need a refresher because they're going to be the constant kind of negative force in the book of Galatians. The Judaizers were the Jewish, we'll say Christians, again, Jewish Christians, who would add in the laws and regulations into Christianity. So it would be faith in Christ and then start adding in stuff now add in all the Jewish laws and regulations and traditions and rules, okay? And so Paul's going to reference Abraham, Sarah, and Hagar for a couple of reasons. One, the Judaizers he was speaking against would have been incredibly familiar with Abraham. Abraham was the father of the Jewish nation. He would have been very well known. Um, There would have been no doubt who he was. They all would have had uh, some sort of contextual uh, understanding of who Abraham was. And, and also, it's highly likely that they actually used Abraham as an example to support their own claims of, these, of what the Judaizers are saying, because Abraham was where circumcision was instituted. Um, and so it's highly likely that not only did they know who he was, they used Abraham as an example of this is how you fulfill and follow the law. And so Paul's going to kind of use their own argument against them. In our passages of Galatians 4, he's going to illustrate the two different covenants using Sarah and Hagar. The first covenant, the new covenant, is based on our faith and grace, and the, new co- or the old covenant is based on the law. In, in, in the allegory he's, Paul delivers today, the children born of the promise or the children that are free as a result of God's promise through faith in Christ, those are children of Sarah. The children who are enslaved and born into slavery, those are the ones trying to obtain works on their own effort would be considered children of Hagar or born of the slave. And so this whole thing, it's not necessarily just meant to disparage Hagar. That's that's not where Paul was headed. Um, It it may seem that way. So keep in mind, it's an allegory written to reveal a meaning. He's not trying to tell us Hagar was the most terrible person who ever lived. Um, But to give us a little clarification, just as we get into this, we're going to do a little backstory in a moment of of Sarah and Hagar, just so we know who they are, because their their reference for most of these verses will be in. Um, The names, if you see Abram and Sarai, you know that that's the same as Abraham and Sarah, correct? So if I say them, if I say Abram instead of Abraham or Sarai, just know it's interchangeable. In fact, in Genesis 17, it's when God changed their names to Abraham and Sarah, same kind of like Saul and Paul. If you Saul of Tarshish, Paul, same, same guy, just different times, uh, names were used differently. So Paul references this heavily, and so I think we need to go back just to give us a little uh, backstory so we know, because some of you may have no idea who Hagar is. It's not just a brand by Dockers. Um, there's some other stuff to that. So we find the, uh, thank you, one person laughed. I appreciate that. <laughs> At least someone laughed. <laughs> um, in Genesis 12, 1 through 3, we find the Abrahamic covenant, which we've mentioned before. And this was a, uh, God's promise to Abraham, basically, that he's going to have this promised land. He's going to have a great nation. He's ultimately going to be a blessing to all people. All peoples of the earth will be blessed from Abraham. And so Abraham is told he's going to have this great nation. And then some time goes by, and he doesn't even have a child yet. And so Abraham begins to wonder, well, what's going on here? You can't have a nation if you don't first at least have one child to carry on your family name. You can't have many descendants if you don't have one descendant. And so this begins to be kind of him wondering, and he, in Genesis 15, you could read some of this. And so he basically wonders, am I going to have to pass on this blessing or this covenant to someone in my household, a slave or a servant? At that time, um, slaves weren't all the way we think of uh, modern-day slavery. It's not that they were all treated well, but oftentimes, 
especially uh, Jewish people were, had certain rules about how they treated slaves even, um, they would be brought in, they'd almost become family members. And so Abraham looks and says, Are you, do you want me to pass this blessing and this lineage on to these faithful servants who are in my household? And so he's wondering if that's how God's promise is going to flow through one of his servants, actually, and not through his own offspring. And, and Abraham is told, no, it's going to be through your very own son, a direct descendant. You're going to have your own son. This would have been exciting news for Abraham. He's older, but he's finally going to have a son. And how does he respond? He responds in faith. And I think it's important for us to see this even from early on in Genesis and into the New Testament. Our response to God was meant to be a faith-based response. Never a law-driven requirement. And so even early on in Genesis 15, 6, Abraham's response to God wasn't like, okay, now what laws do I need to fulfill? His response was faith. And you can see this in Genesis 15, 6. It says, Abram believed the Lord, and he credited it to him as righteousness. Abraham believed God. His faith is what credited to him righteousness. It wasn't his ability, even at that point in time, to fulfill and obey the law. And so some time goes by, and there's still no child, and it's not like he's getting any younger. In fact, Sarah is well, his wife is well past the year she should be able to have a child and conceive. And this is obviously a concern. You know, God has promised them a son. He's promised them a lineage. He's promised them a great nation. And yet he doesn't even have a child. And so 10 years go by, and they still don't have a child. So Sarah devises a plan for Abraham. And she comes to him and basically says, you're going to need to go sleep with one of my servants, Hagar. And you're going to need to have a child with her, and then I'll raise that child, and that will complete God's promise. So in a sense, they're going to go in and they're going to make God's promise happen. They're going to do what they need to do to fulfill God's promise because clearly he had kind of mistaken, right? It wasn't going to happen that way, so they were going to take matters into their own hands. So let's look in Genesis 16, 3 through 4a. It says this, so after Abraham had been living in Canaan 10 years, Sarai, his wife, took her Egyptian slave, Hagar, and gave her to her husband to be his wife. He slept with Hagar, and she conceived. So now I want to pause for a moment and just have an uncomfortable sidebar. We love those things. Um, so especially if you're a college student or single or a high school student, this is kind of relates to you. What made Hagar Abraham's wife? Anyone dare say it out loud? <laughs> the consummation of the relationship. We'll say it that way because we got kids in here, okay? We all know where we're going. If you don't, ask your parents later. It'll be a fun conversation for lunch. <laughs> Christy just said, don't do that. <laughs> I have kids. They're not in here today. I can do it. Um, so the con it, it wasn't the fact that they had a big ceremony, a legal document, or a $40,000 wedding. Okay, in God's eyes... They became married when they consummated their relationship. And so what I want us to see just in this little sidebar, especially for single people, is when we go outside of God's plan and design for marriage, we're going to bring struggles into our relationships. And we see that in a moment with Abraham, Sarah, and Hagar. When people begin engaging in the physical relationship outside of marriage, and that relationship ends, ultimately they're bringing future struggles into their other relationships. Okay? And so we need to understand that in a sense... The reality is this, it's not just losing a boyfriend or girlfriend. When we have these quote-unquote breakups after we've engaged in the physical act of a relationship, if that's what kind of meant marriage biblically, what are we in a sense doing? We're, we're kind of having these, as uh, Mitch refers to them as many divorces. You know, it's not a legal divorce, 
the way we understand it, but it still has long-term effects on us. And if we continue down that road of engaging in, in the physical act of a relationship and we continue having these breakups and we just repeat this cycle over and over and over, what have we begun to condition ourselves to? Divorce and infidelity. And, and, and culturally, and so that's why I said this is kind of the uncomfortable sidebar for single people, when you do that repeatedly and over and over, you begin to condition yourselves for divorce and infidelity because you've taken something that God instituted as part of marriage that was actually the defining point of when you were married, and you've taken it outside the context of marriage. And so we, we kind of culturally, we've really messed that one up if we're honest. And so I, I don't want to go down and say God won't be gracious to you or that this is in any way earning your salvation, but it's an understanding that God has a plan and design for our relationships. And when we take those and twist those and get them out of whack, we're going to bring hardships on our life and into our future relationships. And very much this is what's going to happen with Abraham, Sarah, and Hagar right now, is they took what God had designed for marriage between a man and a wife and twisted it to meet their own needs. And now they pay a price for that. And in fact, if you know anything about what's going on in the world and God's promises and how that ended up happening through Ishmael and Isaac, the, the carryover of that taking it into your own hands still exists in the world today. There's conflict that still exists because they manipulated God's plan for relationship. And it, it jacked things up. And it can jack things up in our life. All right, so that's my uncomfortable sidebar for single people today. Um, so now Hagar is pregnant with Abraham's child. Does this solve the problem? Absolutely not. It does not solve the problem. It exasperates the problem. Okay, so all of a sudden now, Sarah's jealous of Hagar. It was her plan, right? But it doesn't make it better. Um, she's jealous of Hagar because now Hagar's carrying her husband's child. That did not make things go better for her. And then Hagar starts treating Sarah with contempt because why? I'm carrying your husband's child. There's tension between these two ladies, so much so that Sarah basically, and, and then again, this is Abraham stepping back and saying, no, you deal with it. The, uh, Sarah comes to him and says, here's what's going on. He says, basically, it's your problem, you deal with it. I'm stepping back from this thing. She treats Hagar so badly that Hagar takes off and leaves and flees out into the wilderness. All right, eventually she comes back. She goes on to have a son named Ishmael. And then God eventually does fulfill his promise of roughly 13 years later that they have a child. And so once they have that child, his name is Isaac. And once he's weaned, Ishmael and Hagar leave. And there's a lot more to this story, and you could go read it if you want to in Genesis 16 and 17, but that kind of gives you the overview so you'll know the cast of characters we're referring to in a moment, when, especially when we get into the allegorical part of this. But the first thing we're going to do, we're going to look at one verse because it kind of begins the process of the allegory, but it also stands alone. So if you want to look in Galatians 4, it's where we've been in our series, Breaking the Law. We're going to read this one verse, and then we'll kind of talk about it, and then jump into the allegory. And it says this, tell me, you who want to live under the law, do you know what the law actually says? Do you know what the law says? So Paul asks this question, do you know what the law says? And I say, I phrase it this way, are you sure about that? You sure about that? Have you ever asked someone that question before? You sure about that? Sometimes we ask it as a learning opportunity, right? For someone to see what they're about to do. With your kids, especially maybe with teenagers as they get older, it's actually a pretty good question to ask them. It's a way to let them think and process and work through something on their own, but you're still trying to put up some guardrails for them and say, you sure you want to do that? But it lets them kind of step back and think like, oh, I don't know, is that a good idea? Rather than just always being like, I'll tell you exactly what to do. 
allows them to think it through. And Paul's kind of doing that. Are you sure about that? I know in my own life with my kids, there's times, especially some of the ones, the older two, Ryan and Caitlin, uh, I'll even say, like, you sure you want to leave the house on today without a jacket? You know, it's a little cold out there. And then I'll kind of step back and let them make that decision. And secretly, what am I hoping? That it's freezing cold and they freeze their butts off after they've chosen not to listen to me, right? Because then in the future, they'll listen to me when I say, are you sure you want to leave the house without a jacket? You sure that's a good idea? And let them make a decision. And Paul's saying, you sure about that? Um, when I play board games at my house, um, I, w- my wife had generally has to teach new people to how to play because I'm not the friendliest teacher when it comes to those things. Um, so I'll let her teach them. But I've learned that there's a better way to ask a question than just saying, hey, dummy, don't do that. Sometimes I'll say, like, are you sure that's what you want to do? You sure that's the direction you want to go? And what I'm hoping is that they'll step back, they'll think, like, you know what, maybe that's not the best idea. Maybe I shouldn't do that. That, that wasn't the best idea. Well, Paul is asking that question of these uh, people, uh, the believers that are influenced by the Judaizers. He's saying, you sure you want to do that? You want to start living under the law again? That doesn't make a lot of sense. Are you sure that's what you want to do? Do you really remember what the law says? And you're saying you want to live under that? You want all that regulation piled back on top of you? We've just recently been given freedom from the law through faith in Christ. And what you're telling me is all of a sudden you want all those rules and regulations back? You see, the Gentile converts here in Galatians are being influenced by the Judaizers. The Gentile converts probably have seen the rigors of the law. They've seen what the Jewish people lived under, but they haven't lived under it themselves, right? And I don't know about you, there's a difference between seeing something and actually living it. Like this week when I was out driving, I saw people outside working in the heat. And I knew it was hot, and I knew that would be unpleasant. But you know what? Seeing it did not make me pour sweat. It did not make me, you know, almost dehydrated. It did not make me miserable. I felt bad for him. And I was like, boy, I wouldn't want to be out there today. But I didn't feel it. I wasn't living it. And these Gentile converts, they've seen some of the regulations the Jewish people lived under. But they never lived under it themselves. And now all of a sudden they're falling for these Judaizers and bringing on law on themselves. And Paul's saying, no, you know what? I lived under that. I lived under the full weight of the law. I was trying to fulfill it completely. And he knows what that would mean for him and their life. And he's saying, this is not what you want. Are you sure about that? To better understand the full weight of the law, it's, it's not just the Ten Commandments. Most of us at some point, we could reference or we have knowledge, a general working knowledge of the Ten Commandments. And we could say, yeah, I could basically live under those laws. No, no problem. It's just those ten I mean, that's generally, don't kill, don't steal. Okay, so basically, you be, you're a good person. You, you fulfill the Ten Commandments, right? That's easy, no sweat. If you look at the books of Moses, the laws of Moses, there's over 600 laws to follow. There's all sorts of things from dietary laws to cleanliness laws and rules. There's special days and feasts and celebrations. And Paul's saying, are you sure you want to go back under that? You sure you want to follow these Jewish uh, people that are influencing the Judaizers? I don't think so. I don't think you know what you're asking for. And to understand the Judaizers and what they're trying to do and influence people, um, the, the Jewish people struggled greatly with the major changes God would bring about historically for them. And right now, they're just in, in, in the middle of a major change where they've changed from Old Testament law and rules and regulations to now faith in Christ alone for salvation. And so they struggle with that greatly. If you look back, even historically, you can see things in their history where they struggled when God would change things in a major way. 
um, one of these things happened um, was after the plagues in Egypt. You know, they're finally released from Pharaoh, and what do they say? They go out to the wilderness, and God's leading them, and they basically say, why have you brought us out here to the wilderness to die? We would rather return to slavery. So rather than trust the promises of God and move forward with this change in their life, albeit drastic, they say, we'd rather go back to what we know. We'd rather return to slavery. We'd rather return to the bondage we had in Egypt than the freedom you offer us in the promised land. So now what's happening with these Judaizers even now, they're saying, we'd rather return to bondage and slavery of what we know. We know the law. The law has been around a long time and we know it. We'd rather return to the law that we know than the promise we don't know. And so they always are pushing that, this, this fear of change, the fear of the unknown, the fear of trusting God when he would make a change. And so even if that means a return to slavery, they were willing to make that return. And so Paul asked that question, you sure about that? Do you know what you're asking for? I don't think you do. And then he jumps into the story, the allegory. And so we're going to read that now, um, and then we'll look at some of the things we notice about being children of Hagar or children of Sarah. So let's pick it back up in Galatians 4.22, and we're going to read through verse 31 now. The scriptures say that Abraham had two sons, one from his slave wife and one from his freeborn wife. The son of the slave wife was born in a human attempt to bring about the fulfillment of God's promise. But the son of the freeborn wife was born as God's own fulfillment of his promise. These two women serve as an illustration of God's two covenants. The first woman, Hagar, represents Mount Sinai, where people received the law that enslaved them. And now Jerusalem is just like Mount Sinai in Arabia in Arabia, because she and her children live in slavery to the law. But the other woman, Sarah, represents the heavenly Jerusalem. She is the free woman, and she is our mother. As Isaiah said, rejoice, O childless woman. You who have never given birth, break into a joyful shout. You have never been in labor, for the desolate woman now has more children than the woman who lives with her husband. And you, dear brothers and sisters, are children of the promise, just like Isaac. But you are now being persecuted by those who want to keep the law just as Ishmael, the child born by human effort, persecuted Isaac, the child born by the power of the Spirit. But what do the scriptures say about that? Get rid of the slave and her son, for the son of the slave woman will not share the inheritance with the free woman's son. So dear brothers and sisters, we are not children of the slave woman. We are children of the free woman. So some things in this allegory that stood out that we're going to look at over the next few minutes. We're going to kind of break it down this way. We're going to look at the children of Hagar and what was talked about about them. And then we're going to go back and look at the children of Sarah and what was talked about them. And so as we look at the children of Hagar, the first thing to me is this. They will embrace the message of the Judaizers. A child of Hagar, a child of the slave is going to embrace a message of a return to the law. In a sense, these are people who are striving to earn their salvation. They're trying to merit their salvation through their works, things done in their own efforts. That would be a child of Hagar. A child of Hagar is going to want a return to Mount Sinai where the law was given. Um, and it references even current or modern day Jerusalem. That was where people were currently trying to fulfill the law. So Mount Sinai is kind of the, the birthplace of the law in a sense. That's where Moses went up to and received the Ten Commandments. Um, so that was kind of the location the law began. And so he compares that. If you, if you want the law placed back on you, if you're a child of the slave woman and you want law brought back about on you, 
you would love Mount Sinai in a sense, in the current Jerusalem. Well, what was currently in Jerusalem? The temple. So what would be in the temple? This is where the Jewish people would go to offer sacrifices for their sins. But what's happened, there's been a change to where it's no longer about our sacrifice for sins. Jesus paid the price for our sins. But they're still desiring to go back to that. So in a sense, a child of Hagar wants to go back to the not modern-day Jerusalem, modern when, the, when it was written, the current Jerusalem where the temple's at, and offer sacrifices for their sins and earn their forgiveness and deserve it because they've done the things they're supposed to do that was written in the law. So they're still operating under the law instead of believing in Jesus Christ as the ultimate atonement for sins. That's a child of Hagar. A child of Hagar will be a legalist. In our culture, a better understanding of the word Paul uses as slavery would be legalism. For us to put a, a better contextual understanding. Modern day Judaizers, they would have been the legalist in our churches. And if you know, that, that is basically a legalist is someone who depends on following a moral code instead of just faith in Christ alone for their salvation. So they may believe in Jesus for salvation, but then they have the, the real list of things you have to do. That's a legalist. That's exactly what the Judaizers were doing. They could have different names, but that's what they did. They said, okay, you've believed in Jesus, but now you have to do this. Now you have to go do these lists of requirements. Now we're going to really unload the weight of the Jewish law on you. And a modern-day legalist says, you've believed in Jesus, but now you have to do this. And insert whatever you want. Different people in different churches do different things. But we add to the gospel... And we add to what it says and we become these modern day Judaizers instead of saying, no, we believe in Jesus alone for salvation. That, that's the sole answer. It's not what we add to it. Jesus Christ for salvation. So a modern day Judaizer or a child of Hagar would be your modern day legalist in a sense. Paul says no to that. If we're doing that, we're not a child of the promise. Another thing he says in that verse, in that allegory, he says we're not going to share in the inheritance. People who are striving to earn their salvation through the law and that are slaves to the law, will not share in the inheritance. Why? Because our own efforts are not good enough. We've said that time and time and time again as we go through the book of Galatians. Our own efforts are not good enough. This, again, is that reference to the Abrahamic covenant, that once we become adopted, if you were with us earlier in Galatians, what happens when we believe in Christ? We're adopted as his sons and daughters. We now are partakers of this Abrahamic covenant in a sense, we can say Father Abraham, even though we're not Jewish because we've been adopted and sons and daughters, we're part of this lineage, this history. And now ultimately we share in this eternal blessing of that covenant if we believe in Jesus, but those that do not will not share in the inheritance. The children of Hagar, the slave woman, who are placing the law, and it's not just the law, it's the condemnation that the law brings. We place that back on ourselves. The next thing we see about the children of Hagar, they're born of ordinary means. Ishmael's birth to Hagar was an ordinary birth, in a sense. He was born according to the flesh. And so Sarah and Abraham devised a plan that included Hagar to have a child. And this was kind of the age-old, tried-and-true way of having a baby. So I'm about to say something so profound here. You can pause and write this down if you want to, okay? Everyone in this room has been born, right? That's profound. That's, you got your money's worth. Mom, you're glad you sent me to college for that one. Everyone in this room has been born, right? And we were all born the same way. We were conceived by our parents, born, you know, maybe it was a C-section or a natural birth or whatever, but ultimately the gist of it is pretty similar. We were all kind of born in a human effort. 
And that's what Abraham, Sarah, and Hagar are doing right now. It was their own human effort that brought about Ishmael. It was, in a sense, ordinary. And Jesus has a conversation, we're going to look at it a couple times, in John chapter 3 with Nicodemus. And he says this to Nicodemus in John 3, 6. Humans can reproduce only human life, but the Holy Spirit gives birth to the spiritual life. We've all been born of the flesh in here. In a sense, we're all born as sinners. We're all born under the condemnation the law brings. If we're all born by, in a sense, we're all born sinners. We're all born as children of Hagar, slaves to sin, our heirs to eternal punishment in a sense. That's our natural state. That's where we start. We've all been born. There's got to be a change. Something's got to be different. And so the first thing we see is, are we a child of the slave? Are we a child of Hagar, slaves to the law and the condemnation the law brings upon us, not sharing in the inheritance? Or the flip side to that is, are we a child of Sarah? Are we a child of the promise, the free woman? So let's look at what those verses said about, about Sarah and what we've kind of seen throughout the book of Galatians. The first thing is this, if we're a child of Sarah, we'll have faith alone in Christ alone, and we're going to resist the message of the Judaizers in our life. So whoever that is of trying to add on to salvation and say it's something more than faith in Christ, we're going to resist that message. We're not going to embrace that. We live for the Jerusalem above. It talked about the children of Hagar live for the, then the current Jerusalem, and we're, we're slaves to the law. We live for the Jerusalem above. This is in contrast to that. This is talking about the eternal Jerusalem, in a sense, heaven. A reference to the place where we're no longer under the law, but we have ultimate freedom as Christ and save, as our Savior. If we believed in Jesus for salvation. The next thing, a child of Sarah will be a grace-loving people. If we're born of the promise and we're born free, we don't want to pile this law back on ourselves and we don't want to pile it back on other people. We want people to be free from the condemnation of the law that comes through the grace of God through faith in Christ. We're the opposite of legalist. Rather than put rules and regulations back on ourselves and say like, oh, I've got to do all these things to earn God's favor and to merit his favor, we embrace the fact that we have his favor through faith in Christ, not through our own efforts. In fact, our own efforts just leave us short. So there's no, no moral code we follow, no amount of fulfilling the law, and no rules and regulations we fulfill that complete our salvation, that make us saved or add to it. We're grateful for the grace of God in our lives. And we're the opposite of legalist. We share in the inheritance of Abraham. We share in that Abrahamic covenant where we've been adopted as sons and daughters. And now our eternal inheritance is heaven. And what awaits us? It's no longer the eternal condemnation. It's the opposite of that. The next thing is we have an extraordinary rebirth. We talked about everyone here has been born. If we're a child of Abraham or a child of Sarah, the free woman, we have had an extraordinary rebirth. Isaac's birth was extraordinary. Ishmael's birth was based on human efforts. Man and woman have a baby. Everyone kind of knows that. But this was something miraculous, an act that had to be performed by God for Isaac. Sarah was far beyond the age she should have been able to conceive. And in fact, she'd given up long ago. Now, the extraordinary birth or the miraculous birth is where God intervenes, and he does something. He makes a change. He restores. He allowed her to give birth. It was nothing she could have done. There was no fountain of youth she could have chased down and had this been 
brought young enough to conceive a child. It had to be a miraculous rebirth through God at work in her. And in our own lives, do we have a spiritual rebirth where it's been a miraculous work of God in our lives? It cannot be a pursuit of our own efforts. If it's a pursuit of our own efforts, we're a child of Hagar. It had to be miraculous or extraordinary. And it's a rebirth in a sense. You can see this again. We reference one verse in John chapter 3. But in that chapter, Nicodemus comes to Jesus at night and he has a conversation with Jesus. And this is where he tells him, basically, you have to be born again. You have to be reborn and born of the Spirit. And Nicodemus says, well, how's that even possible? I'm a full-grown man. I can't re-enter my mother and have her give birth to me. And he's saying, that's not what I mean. It's a born again in the Spirit. So you can call it born again or saved or whatever Christian word you want to put on it. But it is a spiritual rebirth, a birth from death into life eternally. And so through faith in Christ, we share in that miraculous birth that Isaac had. The birth Isaac had was impossible apart from God. Our spiritual rebirth is impossible apart from God. And we find that his sacrifice on the cross, in John 3 it references that, continuing that conversation, it says, For God so loved the world, he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him will not perish but have everlasting life. Again, we come back to the foundation of our salvation. It's belief, it's faith in Jesus Christ, not fulfillment of the law. So we do the impossible through God. Instead of being born of the flesh and condemned by the sins of the flesh, we're now born of the Spirit. We're free from the condemnation of the law that it brings upon us. We're now a child of the free woman, the one who gave birth in a miraculous way. We're no longer the ones who are just born out of the human effort because our human effort alone brings us into sin and condemnation and punishment and separation and a lot of bad things. But being reborn of the Spirit brings us to salvation and belief in Jesus. Paul ends this portion of his letter in an encouraging way. If you remember, um, if you remember this, give yourself a gold star or something because I barely remember and I'm the one who said it when I spoke. Um, all the way back at the beginning of Galatians 1, Paul started off differently than his other epistles. He starts off, in a sense, chomping at the bit, ready to go. Many of his other letters, he, he starts this way of, my dear brothers and sisters, they're my dear children. There's this very, like, caring tone to his voice. And when he started off Galatians, he did not start that way. It was like, I'm going to get to the point. I got a message to tell you guys. I'm frustrated with you. You're falling for the message of the Judaizers, and let's get to it. But he kind of takes a moment here. He's reaching this end of this point where he's been referencing the Judaizers very harshly in Galatians 1 through 4. And he kind of comes to the end of this segment. And he steps back and he references them as his dear children, his brothers and sisters again. And so this is really for us, it's a clear indicator that the people of Galatia that he's writing to have not completely turned to the message of the Judaizers. In fact, he references them and says, you're a child of the free woman. Embrace the message of the gospel one of freedom through faith. So Paul hasn't given up hope on them yet. He's, he was frustrated with them, but he still views them as children of God or children of the free woman, believers. And he's saying, but don't fall prey to the Judaizers, the ones who want to leave you astray. Continue living your freedom out that you have in faith in Christ. And so some questions for us to ask today or to think about for ourselves is, are you sure about that? You know, are you sure about that in your life? You know, in, in your life, do you ever pause and ask yourself that question? I jokingly say we ask that of our kids and say, like, you sure that's the direction you want to go? 
Do we ever step back and, and look at what God's leading us to do in our life and say, am I sure about that? Is this what he wants for me? Is this the direction he's leading me? Or am I about to bring things on myself that I don't want, that God doesn't want for me? It's easy for us to see the flaws in our children or see the, the poor choices they make oftentimes. Um, as you kids get older, sometimes it becomes easier. You think they get smarter. So far, I'm learning that's not true. Um, you know, we just learn, we see it so simply in them, but I think sometimes God probably sees that in us. Like, we, we should be older, we should be past that. These Galatian believers should be past falling prey to the message of the Judaizers. They shouldn't want the law brought back about on them, but yet they find themselves drifting into that. And I think we can do exactly as a child would do and, and say like, no, I think this is what I want to do. And there's times we need to step back and look at God's word and what it's leading us to do and say, am I sure about that? Is that what he really wants? Is God really leading me to that? Am I following him? Am I trusting him? Am I going the direction he wants me to go? Or am I trying to go at it in my own effort, in my own works, and I'm going to make it happen? That's what Abraham and Sarah did. They made it happen, and it, and it led to a lot of conflict and a lot of tension that's with us today. So are you willing to ask yourself that question? Are you sure about that? And are you willing to ask others that question if it's going to keep them from falling from the Lord? Are you sure that's the direction you need to go? Are you sure that's what God wants for you? Are you sure about that? The next thing, are you trusting in God's promise or are you trusting in your own works? Sarah and Abraham messed things up royally when they stopped trusting in God's promise. God had a plan. He had a promise. He had committed to something. And what happened? It didn't meet their time frame. Obviously, God wasn't holding up to his part of the bargain, and so they had to fix it. God's plan wasn't working, so we're going to go at it alone. So they brought in Hagar. And we look back historically and we say, that was so dumb, right? Like, why would you ever do that? God had a plan and a promise, and absolutely, that's exactly what we do that all the time. We get anxious. We don't wait for God's direction or he's led us to do something and it doesn't happen when we want it. And sometimes there's waiting and there's things in our life that we have to wait for. Uh, Christy's cousin recently uh, wanted to be a missionary in Papua New Guinea and he didn't raise his funds in time and, and so he wasn't able to go. And then what happens by not being able to raise his funds in a certain amount of time, he had to stay and wait and he ends up going to a mission, missionary seminar camp, something like that, and he meets his wife there. In his own plan, in his own timing, if it was all up to him, he would have had his funds, been out of country, and gone. In God's plan, in God's timing, in his working, he doesn't get the money he needs at that time, meets the lady who becomes his wife. Shortly after that, he gets fully funded, and he's now over in Papua New Guinea. But sometimes our plans and our timing doesn't always line up with God's plan and timing. And it's easy for us to become like Sarah and Abraham and say, no, I'm going to force it. I'm going to do it on my own especially if you're a problem solver, an A-type personality. It's like, no, this is how it's got to be done. Clearly God's dropped the ball on this. Let me get on that, God, and make you speed up. And we think we need to fix his plan because it's not working. And instead what we need to do is trust in him even when we don't understand what's going on. And that's tough. I, I don't say that. I, I can say that in my life now because everything's, relatively speaking, knock on wood, is, is fine. Easy to say that when times are good, right? Just trust in God when everything's 
in, in your life. And that, that, that's kind of one of those quips we say, that's easy when things are good, but when things are tough, that's tough. It's tough to live that out when times are tough in your life. Continue trusting in God. Man, we need to continue trusting in his promise, even when we don't always understand it, even when that's challenging. And then lastly, ask yourself, are you a child of Hagar or a child of Sarah? A better way to say that is, are you striving to fulfill the law and earn your salvation, or do you believe that you're saved through faith alone in Christ alone? If you believe you're saved through faith alone in Christ alone, you're a child of the free woman, a child of the promise. You have an inheritance waiting for you. If you believe you're going to strive to make yourself good enough and earn it, the inheritance waiting for you is one of condemnation. You know, we always say it's as easy as ABC, admitting you're a sinner in need of a Savior, believing Jesus died on the cross and rose from the grave, and choosing to place your faith and trust in him alone for salvation. If you want to become a child of the free woman, heirs to the eternal inheritance, that's what you need to do. You see, we read about Sarah and Hagar, and it basically became the birth of the two of the most powerful people groups the world's ever known. And Paul's trying to get them to see these people he's writing to in Galatia, the superiority of the life we have in freedom of Christ and to the life we have of slavery under the law. And when you pursue the law, you're pursuing, in a sense, slavery on yourself. Instead of trusting in God's freedom for salvation, following the law is a futile effort on our own part. It's not possible. We cannot fulfill the law enough to make ourselves good enough. And Abraham, for a season, took things into his own hands. He took God's promise into his own hands and says, I'm going to do this. And it caused pain. It caused strained relationships. It caused heartbreak. And it caused dissension that still exists on earth today. And the Judaizers were taking things into their own hands now and saying, no, we've got to continue following the law instead of trusting in God. Do we really want that in our church, in our faith? Do we really want to go back to a time where we have a checklist of laws we have to follow? of things we have to fulfill, of requirements we have to, be, to do. In a sense, we'd be drowning in our own sinfulness and adding more weight to ourselves and saying, no, I need more. We're struggling to stay afloat. I can't fulfill all this, but give me more of these laws that are just going to push me under. And we're drowning in the weight of the law instead of ex- experiencing the freedom we have through faith in Christ and God's grace. And that's when we talk about this story of the two women, of Sarah and Hagar. It's Do we want the weight of the law placed back on us to be children of the slave woman? Do we want that put back on us? Or do we want to say, I'm I'm free. I'm free from the weight and the condemnation the law brings. I'm free from the bondage and the chains of sins anymore. So spiritually speaking, it's ask yourself this question. Who's your mother spiritually? Is it Hagar or Sarah? Have you been set free and you're now a child of the promise through faith in Christ? Are you a child of the slave awaiting the ultimate punishment? And I would say we would all hopefully say, I would rather be free. I want freedom. I want the freedom that comes through faith in Christ alone. Let's pray. Lord, thank you that you have set us free, that we can be a child of the the free woman and heirs to the promise, that it's no longer based on our ability to earn or merit salvation but that as we've seen repeated throughout Galatians, these first four chapters, it all comes back to faith in Christ and what he did. And it is 
absolutely nothing to do with my own effort and own ability to earn it. We would all be left drowning in the weight of our sin. Thank you that you brought about freedom in Christ, that we can celebrate that freedom, that as Christians we can be joyful, that it's no longer about our ability to uphold the law and earn our salvation. Thank you, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen.